Hey, this is Nick DiMatteo from Music Is Not A Genre. I just wanted to take a minute to talk to you about the service I use to record and distribute my podcasts. If you haven't heard about Anchor, let me tell you from experience, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Here's why. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So please take a moment out. If you are planning to create, record, and distribute podcasts, take a look at Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to video number 60. And for those of you listening on the podcast services, season three, episode 19 of Music is Not a Genre. Each week I take a release or several from my collection. I talk about them, I give my take on them, I throw in some interesting stuff and opinions and facts and stories, and I connect them to my music, to other music, and to other things in the world. Thank you to everyone who has subscribed my YouTube channel, is now over 100 subscribers, and I'm excited about that. I'm excited to keep on growing. Thank you to all of my Patreon patrons. You are beloved to me. Anybody who listens on any of the podcast services, hello and welcome, and thank you for listening and watching and clicking and sharing and commenting especially. I always love your comments, uh, whether you agree or disagree. I appreciate all of it this week. So... Let me give you the uh, let me give you the title first, and I'm going to go into what's going on here. So this title is hyper social, short, and canned. They might be future giants. I'll explain all of all, all of that later, but I need to say something first. This week is this this week is a repeat in in a sense of the energy of some of the other weeks that have happened recently, and there's a reason for that. So first, when I started all of this writing in written form with photos, I was doing cassettes and then I transitioned to vinyl. And during that vinyl period, I started these videos and eventually transitioned to, to audio. And all that's wonderful, right? All those were mine. And there was a reason why I had them. In some cases, very strong reason, reasons. There are very, you know, something very seminal about them, et cetera, et cetera. And that all applies, and some of those were very vibrant and vital. But what I'm finding now that I've entered into the CD era, and the selections that I'm talking about come straight from my pretty vast CD collection, More, there are more instances when the topic that I'm getting into is is super exciting. It has, it has, there's a lot of energy behind it. It's almost overwhelming in a way because there are certain bands, certain albums, artists that mean a whole lot to me, like a ton to me more. And I'm not, this is not a judgment call. This is just a personal thing, but more than say, um, you know, Sean Cassidy or some of the, the, the later kind of vinyl that I did. And even more in certain ways than some of the other bands and artists that I did on cassette. And this is one of those cases, absolutely. I recently, uh, I did uh, Matthew Sweet. 
if you've been following along it was a few episodes ago, and it was the same thing there where it was kind of overwhelming to talk about all that because of what an influence he's been on my, you know, on my music and, and just the listening experience I've had with him for all these years. This band predates Matthew Sweet even, uh, both in terms of, well, they both started around the same time in the early 80s, 1982 in particular for They Might Be Giants. But as far as their influence on me, when I started listening to them, when they're, when their releases started to kind of trickle into uh, publications and, and radio and places where I could, you know, find them, was around 1985, 86. So it predates, you know, by a few years and came at a time when I was still open to a huge amount of influence and development musically uh, as a listener and as an artist. So... Uh, I'm going to kind of go into a little bit about who They Might Be Giants are. We'll talk a little bit about the, you know, releases that uh, if you're watching, you see here in front of you. And if not, uh, I'll go over, you know, some of what they are and kind of give you a general sense. Uh, but before I do any of that, I kind of need to frame what's going on here. And why did I call it hyper, social, short, and canned? And why is that such a dang tongue twister? Jeez. Um, they might be future giants. And that's this. Uh, in fact, I'm, I'm going to do a very short thing that will lead up to what one of my next podcasts will be about, which is pop music and the idea of what is pop music, what isn't pop music, and, and all of that stuff. Um, the reason why I'm going to talk about that is because I have a lot of respect for it, as I do for lots of types of music. But in particular, pop often gets uh, trashed or considered to be less significant or impactful as other types of music. And that podcast is going to go into that. And for this, the reason I'm mentioning it is because I do think pop music is great. I think, you know, it doesn't mean I love every single pop song ever, but the, the breadth of pop music throughout history is pretty incredible and what it's been able to cover and the other types of uh, genres and styles that it's been able to include in it and integrate has been pretty amazing. And it is often, not always, but often a reflection of society as a whole or at least the interests of a certain, certain large groups of people. And that's, that's wonderful. You know, it, it takes a while for pop to admit uh, certain uh, elements that seem foreign or weird or a little too far ahead, uh, you know, in most cases. Um, and that's fine. But in general, it's pretty healthy and, and it, it does a good job. That difficulty that pop has in admitting things is what causes a lag time between when underground people hear something and then a few years later it starts to trickle into the mainstream until even years after that it becomes the mainstream in a lot of ways and and that's because pop let's let's just say pop is a is a person uh pop is like the bouncer at the club admitting in people who look like they belong in that club pop will admit music that sounds like it belongs unless just like in a line, there's somebody so flamboyantly interesting that the bouncer's like, well, you have to get in there. You're going to really make a splash. And every now and then that happens in pop music too. But in general, 
that's not the case. Pop can be very stringent in what it allows in at a certain time. You know, historically, you look back, geez, how, what diversity. But at any given time, pop has pretty strict terms. And that's why it's important that there are agitators out there. And I don't mean agitators in the sense of uh, people who are underground, who want to be underground, who want to do something experimental, who want to do something that deliberately messes with people's heads and says, you know, fuck you to general society and I, I hate the mainstream and all that. That's fine too. That's also very important. A lot of things have come out of that, which ironically often end up in the mainstream anyway, but that's a whole different thing. I'm t I, when I say agitators, I'm talking about people who actually like and respect the mainstream, who, who listen to pop music, who want to be a part of that but they want to bring something new to it. They want to find a way to shake it up. They want, to, they want to somehow maybe seem on the surface acceptable, but then sneak in elements that are uh, out of the mainstream, that are ahead of their time, or that are subversive in some way. And lately, for the last couple of years, but it's been around slightly longer than that, there is a, a new kind of music, you know, so-called new, called hyperpop. And it's where everything is pushed to its limit, where you take what is considered today's pop music or the, you know, pop music of the last 20 years and you just push everything to the limit. It's ultra bright, ultra fast, ultra polished, ultra ultra uh, often ultra short, um the you know, and in the midst of that there are lyrics that are actually kind of weird and the overall effect is kind of weird. It's it's new, and it has not it has not in any way taken over the pop world. It is its own kind of agitation there. I think, and I firmly believe that this is going to start influencing pop music quite a bit. You have people like uh, 100 Gex or Dorian Electra, or even a couple of years ago Tierra Huack, and I'll go into why I'm mentioning her, uh, and and you know, and so many so many others. They are taking the elements of pop and they're kind of pushing it in your face and turning it on its head in some ways and and glitching it out and getting extreme and there's they're getting a lot of press for this and a lot of attention and you know in some ways completely well deserved because there are some uh it's moving the conversation forward it's moving the musical conversation forward which is something i talk about all the time if you're going to do something uh, a, it has to mean something to you first. But B, I believe that the most valuable artists are somehow moving the conversation forward or, or adding to the conversation in a significant way, even if it's not moving it forward. Uh, and I do think Hyperpop in many ways is doing this. But that type of agitation, uh, it's not the first time it's happened. Been around for a long time. You know, for as long as popular music has been around, subversions of that have been around. That's the case with everything. You have a movement that takes over the, the populace. There will be people who either because they hate it or because they revere it and again, want to kind of, you know, shake it up, are going to do a counter movement to that. And that can include elements of the movement, but again, kind of thrown around in weird ways. My argument here is that this band, they might be giants, that's what they did. 
because if you if you know anything about them, which you know, uh, Quick History started in 1982, released their first album, I believe, in '85, which is right here, and I don't have it on CD, so I, um, I brought out my cassette, oh, uh, old home, and that uh, and you know, continue to release albums to this day. They're a duo, John Linnell, John Flansburg. And uh, they're from, I want to say, Massachusetts and then moved to New York. And their record company was in New Jersey. So where I am here in NYC, there's a real connection there, but grew up in New Jersey. So there was a connection there as well. And I don't recall when I first heard them. But what I recall is everything about them seemed like elements I had heard before. They're, they, you know, their first couple of albums at least were all electronic other than the live instruments that they themselves played and of course the, the vocals. And they played with various popular genres, but there was something that was weird about them. You know, and, and, and little did I know, and I kept listening, there was a lot that was weird about, the, about their music, but not so weird that it didn't seem to somehow fit in some ways into the, let's see, the, like the left side of the pop landscape. It didn't, it, it didn't quite reach the pop world uh, in any, with any significance until the 90s uh, when they started to you know, actually infiltrate the charts and stuff like that. But up until that point, the things they were doing still contained really elements of many, many different kinds of music but we're all structured as, almost all structured as pop songs, especially in the beginning, what they did, uh, even with a song like Don't Let's Start. Verse chorus, the whole thing, a bridge, and, and uh, very bright, very tight, very uh, polished, very short, and, and really ultra-produced. Everything was so crisp, and that was partly because they did almost everything on um, I think an eight track for a while, an eight track, an eight track studio um, and often performed their first, I think three albums, four albums. They performed as a duo with backing tracks to them, which at the time was just not done. If you did it, you were considered like a lip syncer almost where you were cheating, you know, and that, that attitude lasted for years and years and years. They, out of necessity and other reasons, I'm sure, wanted to represent the music they were doing in their studio. So they, they brought their backing tracks, they brought their guitar and their accordion, yes, accordion, and their vocals, and that's how they performed for years. And, it, and you talk about, and the reason why I say they might be future giants in the title is because these are things that they were doing in the 80s that then became in many ways, part of the standard of music many years later. And let's, so let's go over some of those things. Uh, before I do that, let me, let me tell you that, yes, I have a couple of these on cassette. I have They Might Be Giants, their first album on cassette. Link in their second album, I have on vinyl somewhere. I don't know where. Uh, it didn't fit here in the, in, you know, beautiful picture that I set up. And then their third album, Flood, which just blew me away when it came out. They all did, but there's something about Flood and the way that it was done. And then Apollo 18, which I also have a cassette, but I have it on cassette because a friend of mine copied it for me. So it's a, it's a home cassette made from that person's, I don't know, album probably. 
at the time. And so I don't have those first four on CD. It wasn't until here where this uh, kind of, you know, B-sides and et cetera, et cetera, miscellaneous T that I got the CD. And then their next actual album that I got on CD, which is John Henry. But that, we'll get to that. It was a big change. That's when they added a band. And from that point on, really fleshed out a whole bunch of things that they hadn't done before. And they did go, you know, do back to doing electronic and stuff like that. But uh, they changed as a band from that point. And uh, in some ways, it got more interesting. In some ways, the fans were kind of confused and not sure where to go with it. But before I get too sidetracked about all the stuff that you're you know, seeing here, let me go back to this point I was making, which is so much of what they did was ahead of its time. So there was a point at which very early on, one of the members uh, got injured and they couldn't perform. But they still wanted to get their music out. And they've always written at a fevered pitch. Uh, so what they did was they started, they started recording their songs on their answering machine, which was, a, which was a device that you hooked up to your phone with a landline in the place you live so that if people called and you weren't there, they could leave a message. And when that message played, it would play a song of theirs. They ended up calling it Dial-A-Song, and they broadcast the phone number to anybody who wanted to call in. A person could actually leave a message after hearing the song as well. But they ended up releasing many, many, many songs between 1985, I want to say, and 2008. It lasted that long. And eventually all of those were compiled on some different CDs and albums, and you can find them online, et cetera, et cetera. And then they ended up reviving Dial-A-Song a couple of years ago. And uh, it's not super active, but you, there's even a phone app for it, which is kind of awesome. And the point being, they were trying to directly market or get their songs to people cutting out the middleman, uh, which... You know, musicians have tried to do for ages, but it was really the way they used the technology that was kind of innovative and kind of ahead of its time. Uh, their ability to perform concerts and their decision to do it with backing tracks and then instruments was way ahead of its time. It, it took until the late 90s, early O's really, when in mid O's, bands would, were just coming out of the woodwork who were quote unquote bands, but were actually only one or two people that fleshed out their sound in the studio and would often, sure, sometimes they'd hire musicians, play as a full band, but they would often play just as themselves with backing tracks. And I, I got to tell you, as an artist, I resisted this for years. I did it a little bit in the late 80s and 90s because I didn't have a band and I had produced my own stuff even back then. But it felt like, it felt to me like I was cheating. And that's just because that's what was, you know, beaten into my head for years. And then I gave that up and I did bands for years and years and years. And it wasn't really until, except for certain very rare instances, it wasn't really until maybe 10 years ago, less, less than that, that I decided I'm going to do that again. And it has its charms. It's very controllable. It's pretty awesome in, in certain ways. The, the music you're hearing is the music you want people, other people to hear. 
you know, and that's great. You're missing out on some things like live drummers and stuff that as a musician you really cherish and and that's something I'm heading back towards and I'm sure I'll bounce back and forth between the two for various reasons. But the point is, they might Giants didn't care about any of that. You know, they formed a band when they could and wanted to with the with that album, John Henry here, which changed their sound in a lot of ways, it had a lot of horns and things and and all. But I saw them as a duo, I saw them with a band. I saw them many, many times back then in particular and for maybe 15 years. And they were as dynamic with or without a band. And they proved that if you have good songs, good material, good production, good performance aesthetic, and you're, you're good at what you do, you can put on a good show however you want to put it on. And that's what's happening now. How many artists do you see... Uh, make videos on TV or performing on talk shows and things like that who are just performing to backing tracks. They're singing, and and some of them may actually be playing an instrument as well, but that's such an accepted thing now that you could try to explain that to somebody who was brought up in this era, and they wouldn't understand what the problem is. And And I say, great. Like what you want to like as a musician as far as whether or not you want actual other musicians behind you. But as far as getting the music out to people and performing it, do it however you can, however you need to, and however you want to. You know, and, and so, but again, this was all way ahead of its time. And pop music was like, no, sorry, you can't enter the club. And they did it. But they did as with many things, history gets the last laugh. And over the years, they influenced a lot of other artists. They eventually did uh, get have some pop hits. They became well-known enough and revered enough that they started to write uh, theme songs for TV shows such as Malcolm in the Middle and Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. Uh, that was because they were getting into children's music and they did several children's albums. They did music, uh, other incidental music for other television shows. They've done music for stage. They contributed a song, I think it was one song, to the recent SpongeBob SquarePants um, stage show, the Broadway show. And and so now they're just revered. You know, they've been around almost 40 years and uh, anybody who knows them loves them and and respects what they do. But it took a while to get there. They were actually one of the first bands in the early O's to offer an album only online. This is an album I don't have. I, I wasn't doing a lot I wasn't doing a lot of, let's say, paid downloading back then. Uh, and that's something that is now I don't know. People put vinyl out and even cassettes because they can and it's fun and, and they like the retro thing and all, but the vast majority of artists are only putting their stuff out online and they might be giants as one of the bands who got there first. So this, these are just some of the examples of how they, how, how they're ahead of their time and how pop, there's always lag time in pop music to where things that are happening in the underground may take anywhere from two to 20 years to finally make it to the, you know, mainstream. Things happen more quickly these days because of technology and the rate of communication and all of that, just like everything else is happening more quickly, but it's still the same thing. It takes a while for things to come from the underground, blah, blah. I'd love to see how long it takes Hyperpop to really start making a giant impact on pop music, and I think it's going to happen. Um, 
And I'm not saying that as a, I like it or don't like it. I'm just, as an observation, you know. They also, I think, pioneered in many ways the idea of short songs. There's an album here, which is the one I don't have. It's Apollo 18. They had a bunch of songs on there that were just snippets of songs, anywhere from 30 seconds, 10, 5 seconds, whatever. And it was called Fingertips. And if you put your CD on shuffle, it, they would just pop in between all the other songs that you were listening to, which was kind of a cool thing. And yeah, shuffling existed then because of CD players, but shuffling playlists is now pretty much what everybody does. And short songs are a huge, huge thing. I just read this thing where pop music is changing because artists are now gearing their songs toward TikTok and things that's, you know, short videos or short attention spans or getting people's attention. So a lot of pop songs are just a bunch of hooks put together. And the song song structure still exists in many ways, and probably the majority of pop songs still. But the idea of throwing structure away for the benefit of each piece of a song being able to exist on its own is kind of a new thing in some ways. But they might be giants, and again, in other ways got there first. Tierra Whack, like I said, put out that album a couple of years ago where all the songs were short, of like under two minutes, I think, and maybe even under a minute. And they did that, you know, they were, they, they did not think, I mean, the idea of a pop song being a certain length was only because way back when 45, 78s, that was as much as you could fit onto one side. So technology has a ton to do with the length of music even, um, as well as attention span and things like that. But tech, people don't realize how much technology has, uh, has dictated that. So now, you know, when that changed, people were doing songs that were seven minutes and 15 minutes and, you know, all of that stuff. And uh, the digital age doesn't matter what length your song is. But now that things have shifted towards how people are absorbing music, it's gone back to not just short, but ultra short, ultra everything, you know, in hyperpop and these types of music, it's ultra. It's always taking it to the, you know, to the limit. And so I have their CD collection from John Henry all the way up to this album called The Else, which was when I started every, every, all of my collection almost stops in like 2011 when I started to hit like iTunes. And then a couple of years later, uh, I was doing like Sirius XM and then I shift over, shifted over to Spotify and, uh, you know, and I just stopped buying CDs, but they didn't stop putting out albums. They have, uh, you know, they, they had other albums after that, um, that album that's only available online is called Long Tall Weekend, right? Uh, but uh, the Join Us and the Nanobots are their more recent albums. Some of their children's albums and other things I only got on the Glean, Glean or Gleaners or the, the Glean, I believe it's called. I, I have on a streaming service. Um, but, you know, when it's a band that's influenced uh, me the way that they have as much as they have and you can hear some of it in some of the music I do I'm going to keep following them however they release their music and um, it's like I said with my you know which format is best podcast it doesn't matter just go listen to the music find it any way you can like you know like the format you want but get the music that's the important thing and yes uh, they did influence my music quite a bit. And, and I can give you many examples. The one I'm going to put here, that's the link below. Please read the text, click the links, find out more about They Might Be Giants, and listen to this song, which is called KPS. 
uh, stands for Korean pop song off of my band Rex album, The Sunshine Seminar. And you can hear that kind of ultra pop to it. And I had different reasons for doing it as the you know title suggests, but the idea actually, the concept behind it was that an alien race absorbed pop music and gave us, you know, created their version of what they thought pop music was or is, and then downloaded it to us. And so in the beginning of the song, you can hear actually the entire song downloaded in, in uh, three seconds or something like that. And then the actual song kicks in and et cetera, et cetera. Um, that was my idea of messing with the pop form, messing with pop music in general. And I have among other bands, They Might Be Giants to thank for that. Do you know They Might Be Giants? Do you remember when they were huge? Did you know that they did all this other stuff for TV and, and film and stage? particularly for TV. Uh, if you do know them, what do you remember about them? Do you remember Hotel Detective or Istanbul, not Constantinople, that awesome remake? Um, do you did, do you remember just their Malcolm in the Middle theme? You're not the boss of me. Um, do you think they were weird? Did you think they were weird then? Or do you look back and say, they weren't that weird. They, they still are kind of quirky. Uh, do you know of other bands that you feel pushed the pop envelope, still tried to really be pop, but messed with it? I'd love to know. I'd love to know what you think of all this, because as always, my objectives here are music, conversation and connection. Thank you for listening, watching, clicking, sharing, subscribing, uh, being a patron. Um, Please do share this or any video with anybody you think will be interested in being a part of the Music Is Not A Genre family, and I will... See you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.